or something else. That was that hymn was excellent. <laughs> Pastor Hollingsworth and the First Brethren Church of Gratis, Ohio, hosted the best vacation Bible school in our town when I was growing up. There'd be a night through the week in which two buses would be waiting outside for all the kids who were part of VBS and the teachers and the staff of the church. And we loaded up and we would go to Riverfront Stadium. For me, there was nothing like going and watching Sparky Anderson and the Big Red Machine in the 70s. Them dudes were phenomenal. And it was a thrill for us to do that. But we had our vacation Bible school in the basement of the church and it was kind of long and slender and a little bit circular and uh, the, the walls man they were bright white they would blind you they were so white but you know 70s you know how 70s carpet is it was super bright red and it was probably maybe this tall you know if you grew up you know the shag carpet so to speak but it was beautiful and the teacher teaching that day put all the kids kind of in a half circle and the teacher gave us a candle and the teacher came up with what I thought was a phenomenal song that I still remember today. So not to make you really super uncomfortable with my singing, give me just a moment to put it in my head to say the words that were said to me that day because I definitely don't want to make you cringe this morning through singing. Preaching's a different story, but through singing, I don't want to hurt your feelings. The song went something like this. Christ is what the world needs today. Jesus Christ is the way. He is the real thing. Now this song that was put together that I still remember was taken from a little jingle made by Coca-Cola, which I thought really put them on the map. It was sung in Italy on a mountaintop with people from all over the world. And I'm pretty sure it started something like this. I would like to buy the world a home and fill it with love. Grow apple trees and honey bees and snow white turtle doves. And I think they said, oh yeah, I'd like to buy the world a home. Uh, no. I would like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. And then somewhere down the road it said, I'd like to buy the world a Coke. And be there with this in this world of Coke. I'd like to buy the world a Coke. And keep it company. Coke is the real thing. Coke is what the world wants today. Coke is the real thing. And they went off and they had a big sign about this song. Little jingle. Jingles like that were real popular when I was growing up. Of course, me and my brother and sister, we like to watch the Saturday morning cartoons. And nobody probably knows what that kind of stuff is anymore. But we had a litany of cartoons that we like to watch. And jingles was a big part of Saturday morning. My baloney has a first name, it's O-S-C-A-R. A is for apple, J is for jacks. You know, two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese. Conjunction, junction, watch your function. I'm a bill, still just a bill. Interjection, schoolhouse rock, rock. These little jingles was put in our minds and in our hearts to help us in a, to know how our former government came to be. But also, when we would go out on the road, we would want that product. So when I'm a little kid, on our way to the store, I saw that great big M sign. I said, hey, Mom, let's swing by and get a Big Mac. 
Why not? It's in my heart and in my head to have a Big Mac. We'd go to the grocery store, and I'd say, Mom, how about some Oscar Mayer bologna? I really want some Oscar Mayer. These things were instilled within me to purchase this product. In the 80s and 90s, these little jingles or words really came to be mission, vision, and value statement. And nobody was exempt from a mission, vision, value statement. Hospitals have them. Schools have them. High schools, colleges, towns, cities, states have them. Now politicians have them. Corporations have them. Factories have them. Churches have them. We got to tell you our mission, vision, and value statement. Nobody's exempt from this. And I happen to work at a factory most of my life has been in factories. So the leadership comes by and they give you this little laminated card. And they want you to keep this card either in your pocket or at your desk. And they say, this is our mission statement for quality. So the customer comes around and says, hey, what's your view on quality? Well, if you're like me, I'm a nervous wreck and I don't want to remember nothing. I definitely don't want to remember what the company says about quality. I do a good job. I'm efficient at my job. I got enough things to memorize, that's not one of them. So you show the customer your card, say here's our position on quality. This is our mission and vision on quality. Oh, that's pretty cool. So that you can say to the customer, this is important to us as a company. Nowadays, with all the young people coming up to take over education, to serve in politics, to serve in factories and run corporations, they have four questions that they ask of us today that are working in this environment. Question one, do you feel safe where you work? Is your company looking out for your safety? Question two, are you environmentally conscious? You don't take your dirty paint or your dirty water and just throw it over here in the creek, do you? Or in our ponds or our lakes. Um, do you have a good recycling program so that the earth don't get destroyed by plastics or we accidentally throw it in the ocean? How, what is your stance on the environment, and are you taking care of your environment? The third question they ask is, what do you give to community? Is your business giving back to the community in which it serves, so to speak? The fourth question is, um, does the CEOs and the people on the board make way too much money that they just pay you, the common worker, a little bit while they make a whole lot? We don't see that as fair, so there must be some kind of equality between the big dogs and the little dogs. Any negative response to those four things could cause you to lose a customer. Nobody wants to lose a customer, right? The consumer drives the train. The consumer earns the money, pays the money to buy the product. So nobody wants to lose a potential customer or a consumer they're needed for the company or the politician, or the education system, whatever it is, to grow and be effective and pay the people that work for them. So in order for us to present, so to speak, the right answer, a cadre of leadership from the factory come with the potential customer and kind of stand behind the customer to help ensure that your answer is somewhat agreeable as the way they see it. You don't want the leadership to come behind the customer and you say, no, I see them throw junk in that creek all the time. They don't care nothing about our environment. That's not the right answer. That's a trip out the door on the firing line. So you give what you think to be the right answer that needs to be to the customer so you draw their business. I would like to think this morning that God really 
is the inventor of the mission, vision, and value statement for mankind. Mission, Abraham, your wife is going to have a son. And through your family, the nations of the world will be blessed. First, I got to put him in jail. But don't worry, I'm going to bail him out of this jail. And then I'm going to take him to a wilderness. But don't worry, I'm going to lead them by a cloud by day and a fire by night when they go through this wilderness. In this wilderness, I'm going to give them laws and commands to live by so that they come to understand me, know me, and know what I expect of them. I will feed them, I will give them water, and I will clothe them in this wilderness. And when they come out of this wilderness, I'm going to fight on their behalf. They won't have to lift a hand. I will fight for them. And then I'm going to give them a land, a land they haven't tilled or worked in. I'm going to give them the promised land. Abraham, this is your mission. What's the vision? The vision is, Abraham, that all the nations of the world come to know that I'm the only true God. All these other nations worship idols and follow false gods. And I'm going to show them that I'm the only true God and my glory and who I am will be manifested through you. That's the vision, that all nations of the world come to know me and who I am. Well, what's the value of this mission and this vision? The value is that God loves every man, woman, boy, and girl. He has instilled his character in them. They are created in his image, meaning they have the capacity to think, to see, to feel, to love, to be hurt, to be in pain. I love mankind. And every person is a person of worth to me because I created them in my vision of who I am as God. They are like me in that sense. Mission, vision, and values. Every person is a person of worth to God. When we come to our text this morning, Eli served as the high priest. And his sons were living a corrupt life. They were not following the law of God. They were having relations with all kinds of women and they were stealing from God. And Eli never said nothing about it. And so the Bible says the word was precious in those days. There was not many open visions. The people looked to the high priest and looked to the prophets to understand and study the law and will of God so that they could know where they were at in their relationship to God. God, for his part, trusted the high priest and trusted the prophets to love him, serve him, and follow him and study that law so that they could relay to the people, whether or not they was living under the blessing of God in Deuteronomy, if you do these things, God said, I will bless you. Or were they living under the curse of God? If you refuse to follow me and serve me, this is what's going to happen. So a man might come along and say, man, our crops ain't doing so good. My kids ain't doing so good. Nothing we're doing so good. What's the word of the Lord? There is none because we're corrupt. The leadership was corrupt and couldn't instruct them. But if the crops were doing good, the kids were doing good, and they were growing, and the priests, everybody's doing right, why is it going so good? Because God is blessing what you're doing. The leadership 
was corrupt, Eli would not discipline his boys and call them out of what they're doing. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, God sends a prophet to judge Eli and his boys. So when it does say the vision, there was no open vision between Deborah, who was a prophetess and a judge of Israel, and this prophet that's coming, there was very little word from God for 50 years as to what was happening in their nation. The word was precious. It was hard to find a priest or a prophet to speak to the people because Eli's sons were corrupt and not following God. So even though Eli didn't necessarily do anything, he was complicit because he would discipline his boys. And the prophet said, this is what's going to happen to you and your sons. I know I called you to be a priest forever. This is the way I made it. But you have refused to follow me, you have refused to serve me, and you have refused to love me, and you won't discipline your sons. Therefore, I'm taking the priesthood away from you, and your boys are going to end up broke. Thus Samuel's born in this story here. Samuel will take over the role of Eli because he wouldn't do the right thing by God. I would like to think that I was trained by some pretty good pastors and ministers, that God put me in some pretty right places. And one of the things that was stilled in me was mission, vision, and a value statement. How that was important. So, when I was asked to uh, visit the church, just maybe speak on a Sunday, you know, I spoke about the judgment of God. How I judged people and looked down on people and mocked all these different kinds of people and how that come back to bite me. My second sermon was about, you know, how do you know you got the right pastor? Were you not looking for a pastor? I laid out nine things to look for when you hire a pastor. And then I was watching on the website, joining you in worship, and I saw what was going on and... Um, uh, me and Pastor Brody talked, and I told him what was in my heart. I said, this is where I think I want to go with the church. And me and him had a good conversation, and I wanted to ask him, am I, am I going in the right direction? Is this the place we need to go? I don't want to change the church. I don't want to move them out of who they are, of who I believe they are. I want to be right where they're at and minister with who they are right where they're at. I don't want to change a thing in the church. And he said, well, I think that's a good idea. He said, I think you're going in the right direction. I wanted you to get back to your, what I thought would be your tradition. This is why I put all the pictures here. Everything I say this morning, it culminates on the third sermon on. I'm bringing it to a point this morning, bringing it to the head, and then we'll move on. All this stuff was put out based on that. I said, I want to take them back to their roots, Pastor. Who are they as a church? Where did they come from? And Pastor Brody says, well, you can go down there to the Brethren Heritage Center and learn all you want. I didn't know what that was. He said, not only that, but if you want to know about our church specifically and its history and what we've done, I've given a box to the Heritage Center. And you can go through that box and find most anything you want. He was very helpful to me. He really confirmed within me what was in my heart to do. So after work on Saturday, I would go spend two or three hours at the Heritage Center studying this church, the history of this church, the foundation of this church, 
all the things about the West Alexandria Church of the Brethren. I did that. And then I wanted to know about the brethren in general. How did the brethren form? What's their makeup? And who are they? Pastor Brody was very helpful to me in that. So what happened was I began to get nosy in the building. You hired me as your interim, so if you fired me, it didn't matter. I was just an interim preacher. So I started getting nosy in the office, started getting nosy in things, and um, started finding things in the church. And so I got in this little thing over here. I guess it's a lockbox. And lo and behold, the first thing I find is this man's Bible. And I'll tell you what I mean by man in a minute. This is an 1884 called Parallel Bible. And I was asking a couple of the men in the church if they've ever seen this Bible, and they said no. I said, how would you like to take that on visitation when you're visiting somebody and give them the word of God? <laughs> this thing weighs 500 pounds. <laughs> but they weren't sure because I said, is this, is this an altar Bible? Is this a pulpit Bible? How was this Bible used in 1923? It had to be something special to those people. So I went to the Brethren Center. I pretty much thought Brethren was plain. Brethren by tradition wouldn't have all this stuff up. They would just have a plain building. That, that's the way they, they come to be. So I asked some people, would this be part of the altar or would this be a pulpit Bible? They said, we really don't know. We really don't know. So I found this in there and I agree that this Bible should be all tore up. I agree with that. It should be written on and all that. I agree it should be hidden in our hearts. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I sit not sin against you, God. But this word ain't supposed to collect dust in our hearts. This word is supposed to be opened up and given to whoever we're ministering to. We are to spread that word and share that word with what God has done with us. Not so hide it in our heart that it becomes of no use to you and me. We've got to crack that baby open and use it for the glory of God. Now, I ain't, I ain't figured all out yet. Uh, but I would like to use this Bible in the 100-year anniversary of the church and like to be in some kind of case. And somehow, now this is just Brian because I don't know, you know all your commissions and all that and who I get, get approval from for everything I do. I'm cool with that. <laughs> I would like for this to be the first thing somebody sees is that the word matters to us. This Bible matters. Not, not just because of the history, but the word of God means something to us, and we want to share that word with people out there. And I'll explain how we're going to do that as I go on. That's a good possibility I'm going to lose it. The word is important. So me and Pastor Brody was talking about the word commission. <laughs> and I've been through all that. You guys have changed pastor so many times, changed vision so many times. Your church structure has changed probably a thousand times. You've changed your commissions. You've added. You've taken away. You've done all this stuff. And the gist I got was the commissions are slow. That's the gist of everything I see to get anything done. It's kind of like the military. When I was in the army, they'd get you up at 2 in the morning, take you down to the train station. We're going to get on this train, and we're going to go down there and do some training. And every good soldier takes what's called pogey bait. That's real food you eat before you have to eat the MRE. 
Well, what they don't tell you is you're still sitting there for three days at the same place they got you up on day one at two o'clock in the morning. We call that hurry up and wait. You hurry up to go nowhere. And you're thinking, I could have slept another two days, dude. Not only that, but I've eaten all the good food, so now I'm going to starve when I get to my destination. But I want you to take heart. Because I, I, I really honestly believe you guys have been through a lot. I really believe that. With all the pastors, all the visions, all the changes in structure and all that. Maybe you haven't. I don't know. I'm saying what I perceived when um, I came to be the interim and I read and all this stuff. But I want you to take heart because I found this little article. And this was left on the desk in there. And I told you guys I was going to use all this stuff. Just be patient with me. This article, I'm assuming, was from July 31st. 1936 in the Twin Valley News. Now, I'm not preaching like I normally would, okay? I'm, I'm coming at a different direction this morning. And this is called the Council of Promotion. In 1927, this is from an article in 1936. In 1927, realizing that so many committees were not as efficient as they could be, trustees, finance board, and ministerial board were made into one group of workers, and then it said all the workers just got together. So, you know, whatever your future is, it don't matter how many times you change your board, they've been doing it since 1927, and it still ain't worked. Why would changing it work now? The commissions work just fine the way they are. They flow just fine the way they are. But I do want you to be encouraged that you're not the only one who's had this trouble. Apparently, it's been since 1927 that this kind of thing's been going on. So in my conversation with Pastor Brody, I said, um, Pastor Brody, it, it strikes me that, you know, I, I believe COVID hurt everybody, businesses, factories, and hurt the church. It really did. It, it took a toll on people. And I said, well, I want to get the church back to its liturgy, back to its roots of who it is as a congregation. I don't want to change anything. I don't want to move anything. But I want to get them back to what I believe is their tradition. And that's when he got me on these bulletins. And I'm going to talk just for a few minutes about this idea of liturgy with the sermons I preached from the third sermon on. So he said, you can find these bulletins. So I found these bulletins because I wanted to know the structure of your worship. You know, what was the form of your worship? How did your worship happen? And the first bulletin I got is from 1938. Now, this is just a copy, okay? From 1938, this is your bulletin. And I got flipping through that thing, and you better know I looked at every one of them. Every bulletin there, I studied right to the T. And I'm thinking, well, they've had all kinds of different worship. Man, they've had three pages of uh, readings, no pages of readings. Uh, one of the things that wasn't in there was joys and concerns. Then it was in there, then it wasn't in there. Lord have mercy. A call to worship's in there, then it ain't in there. You have worship that's this big, you have worship that's this big. But I, I said, Pastor Brody, I want to get them back to their liturgy. The reason I said that was, is because when I joined you on Facebook, the first thing that struck me was the acolytes. The, the candles that come be lit. That, that tells me liturgy. And I gathered that from being in the army, watching Lutheran services or Episcopalian services, because I, I served those kinds of congregations. When I saw the acolytes come, I said, that's liturgy. So I want to return them to the liturgical worship of their tradition. This has all been in my heart ever since I was asked to speak, and I read your website, 
and I was studying you on Facebook. All this has been in my heart. I said, I want to return them back to the liturgy. Liturgy being the public work of the people. Liturgy means the public work of the people. So I said, Pastor Brody, I want to get them back to who they were in their liturgy. He says, I, I think that's a good idea because I, I believe this is who you are. Well, when I got to visit the church, I was struck by the windows, the, the tradition of the church. This is a very old building. And I just, I got so excited about the building, so excited about the windows. Then I saw this little thing right here. There's a whoo, the organ thing. Now, I'm Pentecostal, so I'm sorry the way I'm describing it. We would never use this. <laughs> but that thing, when I heard it start blowing up, using it, I said, oh, my gosh, this is phenomenal. This is like a dream for me. And then I was taken to the back and saw the sanctuary, and I saw the bell. The bell just... It just put it over the top. So I said, I want to return the church back to its liturgical worship, beginning with the bell. When the bell rings, liturgical worship means that you're telling the community you're beginning the work of God in your church. Liturgy means you're beginning the work of God in service. So I went to Haggai and to Ezra and Nehemiah talking about all the symbolism that you do that was based in the temple back in those days. So I'm just going to go through the liturgy for a moment. The bell rings. And whoever, whatever church is doing it, it's signifying to the community that this group of believers is about to start the work of God in sanctuary. All the things that make up worship. What makes up worship? The acolytes. When they come down the aisle, they bring the light of God. They bring the light of God into the sanctuary. They bring the light of Christ. That's reflected in the windows. These windows are put there for a reason. That in the day when it's nice out, the light of God shines into our midst. At nighttime, when it's dark outside, there's lights on these windows here. That light shines out into the darkness and permeates the darkness so people can see that there is light. And the light is Christ. And I spoke about that. In the book of Ezra, in the articles of the temple, one of the things was the light that stood for the people of God when they worked in the inner sanctuary. They couldn't see because of all the coverings that was there. That light helped them see to do the work of God. And then they took a portion of that light around the temple so that the Gentiles could see there was hope for them, that they could come to the light. That is a very important part of worship when those acolytes come down and they light the candles. And maybe we laugh a little about it a little bit because little kids do it. I was a little kid when I sung that crazy song. I'm 56 and still remember that song. But maybe, just maybe, those little kids, when they come and light those candles, maybe when they get our age, they can say, hey, when I was little at the West Alexandria Church of the Brethren, I got to light the candles. And maybe they're little, they don't understand that. And maybe they say, well, the one candle didn't light or the candle fell or something happened. And maybe we laugh at it. But that in them is something that they'll never forget. That is, in a sense, the word of God working through them by the light of the world. And turns out, at all the bulletins, you never once had an acolyte. Well, you guys didn't get that, so I might have missed the boat. I thought they've always done an acolyte, and it turns out you never did do an acolyte. I said, oh, man, I really messed up. 
But the acolytes are very important to the liturgical worship of the church. Then there's the worship. And this is where I believe it works through the commissions. We worship the Lord, and it's the worship leader and the worship team's responsibility to bring us to the throne of God through the singing, through prayer, all the things that the worship team does. They bring us right to the throne of God with the songs they choose, with the scriptures they read for offering, for prayer. They bring us to the heart of God. That's their commission. That's their heart. That's what they want to do. Work with it and move in it and do what's in your heart to do. That's your commission. Now, what I'm about to say may frustrate you a little bit, but I'm sure most of you have been in the church 40 years. You probably get tired of doing all this stuff. You want some young person to come in and just take over to give you a break with you. But you're doing the work of God. It's in your heart to do it. Do the work. Do what he's put in your heart to do, and the worship team does that. Now, I've not met with every commission, but I'm going to go into all of them. Then the deacons commission. Take care of the spiritual needs of the people. Call on people when they miss service. Do certain things for the people. They do their work. They do the work of God. We're down there in commissions deciding what needs to be done with the deacons, and we do it. And they just put out a letter. A form was made so that I could start visiting every one of you. And if you don't want me to visit, please let the deacon know. I'd rather him not come to my house. But I have your cell phone number and your address, and that could be dangerous. I'm just saying. But the deacon chair put this paper together because I want to visit everybody in the church. I want you to know me, not just me here, but me as who I am. Uh, uh, who I am. I want you to know me, and I want to get to know you. So we're doing this as deacons. They're doing what's in their heart to do. When something, a disaster or prayer comes up, it's right there. We are flowing and functioning through the commission as the body of Christ. And all this is in the Old Testament. When the priest came in and he did this laver, it was the prayers going up to God because the stench of the animals was all around. So the prayer made a difference. Prayer makes a difference in people's lives, and the deacons do that. I have not met with the stewards, but I'm going to tell you right now, the stewards rock. You can ask those cats about, I don't know, I guess if I ask about this wire, they can tell me what year the wire was put in, how long the wire is, and uh, if that wire is any good or not. They know their building. They know it left and right, up and down, and they may not realize it, but I love to hear them talk about the building the way it used to be, and everything they've done to the building. That's in their heart to do. That's their commission. They love this building. But they also take care of the funds. And they can only bless as you bless them to bless. As we give, they can take those funds and be a further blessing. So they take care of the money. And they do a fantastic job taking care of the money. That's in their heart to do. And they work in that. And that can be used when an outside contractor comes up and says, Man, it's really nice out there. Or how old is this building? The stewards can tell them and then share with them the word of God if they don't know Christ. They don't know him or understand him. Share with them the word. Work through the commissions that you're set up for. Stewards rock. They got it going on. Now I haven't met with the nurture and it's an outreach committee, but I have talked to the individuals. They have a real heart to take care of the congregation that we need to do things as a body of Christ together outside the church setting. 
And they're figuring out what are we being successful at and what are we not being successful at. What's not working, so to speak. But they have a real heart to do the work of God in their commission. And they're doing it. Then you have the board, which brings it all together. And the board chair and everybody getting together and wrapping it all up. You work and you flow and you do the work of God through your commissions in the worship setting. All my sermons spoke to bring us to this point. To bring us back to the liturgy, the public work of God in sanctuary with the call of worship, with the singing, with the tithe and the offering, with the prayers. All this thing was based upon the temple when the children of Israel returned back home and God said, I have freed you and made you whole to worship me. I kind of sense that in what happened with COVID. Everybody's returning back to work and stuff. We're free to worship. And I talked about the altar. The altar of God and the sacrifices that was made by the people. It brought us all to this point today. And it all centers around the word. In the early church, everything was driven by the word. Do you not do the Lord's prayer? That's the word. I preach the word. The word is spoken in the call to worship when you do a Bible verse. The word was spoken this morning in the hymnals. If you look at the top, it says evangelism, regeneration. And then it gives the scriptures down there that they base the song on. Everything in worship revolves around the word. And the word must have priority in the worship. So I talked to Pastor Brody about all this stuff. And then I found what I considered to be the holy grail of the West Alexandria Church of the Brethren. I believe in my heart, this is who you are. Now, I want you to know I preached this sermon three times yesterday, so everything worked pretty good yesterday. It'll probably all fall apart now, but here it is. You should have a copy of this in your bulletin. Now, this thing was hidden, thrown in a closet somewhere. This is your mission and your vision statement. I'm not sure when it came to be, if it was done by the denomination or done by the local church. But me, I believe this says who you are as a church, as a congregation. And I'm going to read that for you this morning. It says, our mission, to daily take Christ's love to everyone by living, serving and working together as his disciples. That's your mission. I believe that is who you are deep down in your hearts. And why would I want to change that? That's who you are as a congregation. That's in your heart to do. And it was hidden. Why would that be hidden? That should be out in the forefront. This is who we are. This is what we want to be. And your vision statement was to become the most loving, caring people on earth. Your mission and your vision statement right here, tucked away and hid. I believe, now I might be wrong, but I believe this is who you are as a congregation, and I believe this is what you want to be as a con congregation and a church. So it is my job as pastor to put meat to this general statement. You can tell me, see I told you to fall. Lord, you don't want me to do it? Well, it's all broke now. Stood up there for three hours yesterday. So I'm asking you to pray for me and let's be in agreement as one body of Christ that I put flesh or scripture to the mission and the vision statement of the church. It's one thing to say take 
Christ's love to everybody. But how do you do that in a practical way? You're just giving me form. Give me reality. How do you do that? I believe you do it through your commissions. I believe that's who you are. So I'm asking you as a church, when you're in your daily prayer life, to please pray for me because it's my job, my goal, my desire that we live corporately this mission and this vision. It might take me two years. It might take me one year. I don't know. But I'm going to put meat to this thing, and I'm asking you to pray in your daily prayers to please text Brian to know what our mission is specifically in our commissions, what we need to do, and to live out the vision that you have. I believe this is who you are, and I believe this is what God wants you to do, and i got to put the meat to it and get us moving in that direction. So I'm asking you to pray, and then that will mean that we'll pray together as a body of Christ and come to agreement this is what God wants us to do. This is going to be a hard task, but it's one I take on gladly. To daily take Christ's love to everyone by living, serving, and working together as his disciples. That's our mission, and our vision is to become the most loving, caring people on earth. That's our vision. On Pastor Brody's last Sunday, he put out this bulletin right here. And you, I got it up there. Grace and Peace. From pastor to pulpit at WACOB from 2013 to 2022. Grace and peace is what he put out. And I listened to his sermon. He spoke from his heart. And I'm going to lay out what I believe he was saying. Lay out what I want to say in reference to this. Because I too have grace and peace as a bulletin cover. But I wanted to lay out to show you how you are living out your mission. To take Christ's love daily to everybody. And to become the most loving, caring people on earth. I want to show you practically how in two guys' lives you have done this. And Pastor Brody, I hope I haven't got this wrong. I don't mean to get it wrong. But I believe this was your heart and I hope it was. By using these words. I can tell you right now, it is not easy to be a young pastor with family. Number one, when in the church, you can't act them all, if they act all crazy, you'll have some good board member come say, your kids are just, they're not ruly at all. You need to control your kids, preacher. Well, the only way to control them is leave them at home. Gee, I'm a man just like you are. I'm trying to raise my kids like you are. You think there's some kind of a special anointing on my kid? Well, there might be, but it ain't, maybe not the anointing I want. But Lord, I'm doing my best. Being a young pastor is hard to do. You may not think it is, but it's difficult. He has to take care of the congregation. He has to take care of his wife. He has to take care of his kids. So the will of God is in his heart to do the work of God. And he wants to do the work of God. He desires to follow him and serve him. But he also has a family to take care of. He may have to miss some events because he's got to go do a visitation or something. He don't get to see his kids play ball or whatever he does. And you don't think that hurts a preacher? It does. And it hurts a kid because the kid would say, my dad really don't love me. Not true at all. In the dude's heart is to do the work of the ministry. That's number one. And so he has to balance all this out, being a pastor, being a husband, being a dad. But you granted him grace. You 
as a congregation granted him grace to grow as a preacher, to grow as a husband, to grow as a dad. You granted him that grace which God had already given him by dying on the cross. But you granted him that grace and he spoke about it. He spoke his heart to you and you said we are caring, we are loving and we grant you that grace to grow as a preacher, as a husband and as a dad. You granted him that grace. And in granting him that grace, you gave him peace. Peace with God, peace with you, and peace in his home. Every man in a marriage wants peace. I'm sure every wife wants peace. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not the wife, so I don't know how the wife feels. I'm just saying from a man's perspective, he wants peace. But a pastor don't want nobody bickering in his church. He don't want to be a part of that. He don't want to always have to put out fires. He don't want to do that. He don't want to have to go home and the wife say, why was you at church till 11 o'clock at night? I fixed dinner at 5. And he's got to explain that. Daddy, why didn't you tuck me in? They don't understand the work that has to be done. But you granted him that peace and he spoke out to you his heart with who he was and with what he's doing. You lived out your mission and you lived out your vision in the life of this pastor. And I'm sure he was so appreciative of you doing that. And by the way, you probably helped the family stay together even closer because you granted him that grace and that peace. Every family fights, every family bickers. Got it? They fight over jobs and all that. But I'm just saying, as a young pastor, dude, that is a lot of pressure for a guy to go through and learn and filter out. You granted him that. God bless you for living out your mission and vision that was hid in your closet for all those years. So I put the bulletin up for me because I believe that you've granted me grace. Now, Mr. Shockey knows me from school, basketball and those kinds of things, but really, well, my aunt knows me a little bit. Rondi, my friend, knows me, so he'll know some of this, but nobody knows me like my wife. So you really don't know me. Honestly, you really don't know me or my life or what I've been through or whatever. But you took a chance, and you hired me from inner pastor to be your pastor without knowing what I'd been through or knowing what I was going through or me outside this little pulpit area. So I'm going to lay it out for you, who I am and what brought me to this point and how you lived out your mission and your vision in my life. Now, I pastored for seven years in College Corner. Church took off to Zoom. We hired a music pastor. We hired a youth pastor. We did all the things. We built a community center for the kids. We had a health clinic for the people that wanted to come get health care. And the preachers served at the health clinic on a certain night. Uh, we did the food pantry on a certain day. And we worked with what's called the junction. I worked with the Church of Christ pastor, Methodist pastor, Presbyterian pastor. We met every Sunday morning before church. We prayed that God would bless this vision we were going to carry out. We got a grocery store. We converted and did all those things. We met every Sunday morning before church and prayed about this. All of us different kinds of pastors. It was booming. I'd preach at the jail two nights a week. So boys would have a ball game. I'd come by and kiss them and be on my way. Amy would call and say, are you ever going to come home? And I'd say, no. I love it where I'm at. That's, that's just me being honest. I thought I was doing the work of God and his will. And this passage that we read this morning in 1 Samuel, uh, this, God spoke to my heart and he judged my life. 
And he says, I didn't love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm thinking, I got out of the army making all this money to take a job where I make $5 an hour. How can you say I don't love you? I picked up my family and I moved. How do you have the nerve to say I don't love you? That's what he said. I preach at the jail two nights a week. I do the food pantry. I'm working with the people who are having trouble at the health clinic. I work with the other preachers. My church is growing. Now, just take it for one when I say my church. The church that I'm pastoring is growing. How can you have the nerve to say, I don't love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm doing what you're asking me to do. Now, it might get a little hard on you here, but this is what he said. You don't love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love your family. You love your church. You love your job. And you love your sports more than me or my commands. My heart broke because he told the truth. I put them over him. I put my job, I, I went to second shift and I shouldn't have done it, over him. I didn't instill any discipline in the church by some sin that was going on. I didn't do what needed to be done. And he says, you've loved these things more than me or my commands. And he says, I'm taking this church from you. In a minute, we went from 75 with all these people to five in a minute. I went to two Church of Christ men who I'd done jail ministry with, and I said, this is what God has spoke to my heart. Nobody's going to believe it. Nobody's going to believe what I'm telling you men. This is what he spoke to my heart. And he said he's going to take the church from me because I didn't love him. And they said, I think you need to resign. You're going to, you're going to lose what's left of your family. Men, we're, we're about to get divorced. It's just too hard. You're going to lose it all. And so God said he's going to take the church. I resigned. And I said to Amy, um, I'm going to go to church where you want to go. You've sacrificed all these years to follow me in the ministry. Where do you want to go? Eaton First Church of God. This is her home. Now, all this is a sermon I preached partially at the Eaton First Church of God. So we went there, and I was content there. Got involved right away. Started going back to the nursing home, preaching at the nursing home, helping in Sunday school, teaching in Sunday school. Amy got involved there, and I was happy. Why was I happy? Because God showed me where my life was wrong with him. And I'm the type of person, I want to be right. And if I'm wrong, put me in check to make me right. Don't bother me a bit. Because I want to be right with him. And you're supposed to love him with everything you got. And I didn't. Even though I was doing the things, I didn't love him. So we go here. And for the first three years, I'm excited about everything. I'm, I'm doing what needs to be done to help the church out. And about three years after being turned down by other churches to being a preacher or pastor, all the churches kept turning me down. I followed the rules. I obeyed man. The church grew. It blossomed. I should have been promoted in my own denomination. The bishop wouldn't let me go because the church was doing so good. I'm like, well, everything I'm doing is working against me. And now nobody will hire me. So I came into the house one day and I said, Amy, I'm no longer the spiritual leader of this house. You can have it. Take all the finances, money. Take the spiritual leadership by the boys, but Brian Jevedon has checked out the door. And that's exactly what I did. Now, I did go to church every Sunday, but I went from dressing like this to having holes in my blue jeans, not caring what kind of shirt I wore to the church. And I sat in the back and didn't bring my Bible as a way to rebel against the King of Glory. I was mad at him. People say it was your own fault, it was the devil's fault. Who cares? 
He's God. He's king. He's Lord. He can do what he wants. Why are you doing me like this? So I sit in the back in defilement of him. Not caring how I look. Not caring how I dress. Not caring what was in my heart. I was just there to be there because, in a sense, I didn't want to lose relationship to him. But I stayed connected to the Sunday school class, these men, in our men's Sunday school class. I stayed connected to them, and they say, you're such a good teacher, you're such a man of God. And I say, you guys are lying through your teeth. I'm evil, I'm nasty, I don't love him. But I still did the function of the church. Those men held me together, and then Christmas held me together. The Christmas services. That would be the only time I would raise my hand and say, thank you for saving my soul. Thank you for loving me. But I got nothing else to say to you. I can't believe you would treat me like this. So even though I did those things, I checked out with him. Now, the funny thing was, I was coaching AAU basketball because I love sports more than him. I remember I was telling you about I would go on Sunday to coach basketball instead of being at church where I needed to be. And I kind of figured out in my own mind, I could go to any church and say, okay, I'm worshiping you, but in my heart, I wasn't there. I was mad at the kid right there for not hitting a three ball. Anyway, all that happened. I started getting calls from all these coaches. Come be our assistant varsity coach. Come teach our defense. Come run this AAU program. Do all these things. And I'm saying, why are you calling me in basketball, but you won't let me be a pastor? What's your problem up there? But that's what was going on in my life. And I was growing, and I was moving into basketball, but that's not where my heart was. Don't you feel that way sometimes? That's not where your heart is? Like, you're doing it just to do it, but your heart's in a certain area of ministry, and that's where you want to be. So I felt disconnected from God. Even though I didn't do anything wrong like Eli's boys did, in my heart I sinned against him by loving other things more than him. So here I am, asked to preach on a Sunday morning. I preached, would you like to be our interim? Yep. Now, you guys don't know me, don't know nothing. I just laid it out for you, who I am, what I've been through. Then you decided to hire me to be your pastor, not knowing me, knowing anything about me. And you know what you did? You granted me grace. You granted me the grace of God. I can only know God in my own mind and my heart through doing the work of the ministry. Everybody says, well, you can, you can just do whatever. You, don't you understand? If, if, if I'm not supposed to be a pastor, dude, up there, just cut it out. Take it out of me so I can be what I want to be. But it, the draw in his heart for me kept coming and kept coming. And I was turned down by so many churches. And then you asked me to come and speak. I now have the grace of God in my life. You lived out your mission and vision to be the most loving church on the earth. You lived it out and you welcomed me in. You gave me grace, the unmerited favor of God, and you granted that to me. In doing that, you gave me peace. I have peace with God. I hope I have peace with you. I have peace with my wife. I have peace with the boys because I was so frustrated. But you granted me that by giving me the opportunity to be your pastor. You granted Brody the opportunity to grow. You granted me the opportunity to find forgiveness in my heart with God. So that if in January or next year you would say, you're fired. We're done with you. 
You lied to us. Their church ain't growing like you said. Everything you told us is a big fat lie. You're done here with us. I would come and shake every one of your hands and hug you because you granted me something that nobody else has. And for that, I will forever be thankful. If that were to happen, I'd go back to the Eaton First Church of God in my suit. I'd go up to the preacher, what can I do to help you grow this church? Because I've been forgiven. God has granted me his grace and his peace through the West Alexandria Church. The breath. You lived it out in your mission and in your vision to the life of two different dudes coming from two different areas. And I thank you for that. But isn't that what communion's all about? When you come up and you receive the broken body and the blood that was shed, don't you sense the grace of God in your own life? How he has forgiven you, how he has touched you, and how you're thankful that despite all your barriers and you're saying, I just, I'm done with you, or whatever you react to God, he says, I love you, and I grant you my grace, and I grant you my peace, and I'm going to show it to you in a physical manifestation because I sent my son to die and to rise for you. Don't you sense that when you come and receive communion? This is why I said communion needs to be the hallmark of our services because it is here we find the deep, true, everlasting love of God when we were lost, when we were undone, when we were defiled. He says, I'm going to pay the bill myself. I'm going to bail you out of jail and I'm going to redeem you through my son with a broken body and shed blood on the cross. And the way I'll do that is through people who love me and serve me and want to be my disciples. And that is you. Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning in Jesus' name. Thanking you for the West Alexandria Church of the Brethren that they've lived out their mission and their vision in the life of two preachers from, coming from two different sides of the world trying to find you love, you, love you, and serve you the best that we could. But this church, this people, granted us grace and granted us peace. And I'm so thankful for that, Lord Jesus. But I'm also thankful, Lord, that you was the first one to grant mankind grace and peace through your love, mercy, and kindness by dying and rising again on the cross of Calvary. I just pray as we receive communion, it brings us together as a body of Christ, not just in the sanctuary, but outside the walls of the church. Lord, I'm never going to bicker or fight with the congregation. Whatever they want to do, I'm going to be with them. I, I, I don't want to be that no more. I just want to be your servant. Use us for your glory through the commissions. Give us a fire to serve you and follow you and you alone and live out the mission and vision that is set before us. And do it every time we come to Holy Communion, Lord. Hear us now, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.